Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. choice in the draft, the San Diego Chargers select quarterback, Washington State University, Brian Leaf. Coming up on the payoff, the second pick in the 1998 NFL draft, second in the Heisman in 1997. I was a huge fan of this dude, uh, and I always have been, uh, and uh, there's more reason than ever to today. Ryan Leaf is as honest as they come. He's totally revealing he is a great example of what you have to do every day to stay sober. He's got a, a new podcast called Bust. I was thrilled, man. Anybody that knows me knows that I love football and I followed this dude for a while. So uh, another guy that uh, I have always followed, Kevin Souza. Ryan. Ryan Leaf, what's up, man? How we doing? Uh, well, dude, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time. I mean, I really, I really appreciate it. It means a lot. I feel like I grew up. I feel like yeah. I, I feel like I know you growing up because we're about the same age. I got out of college in '99. You know, you got drafted in '98. I have like a little bit of a football background. I went to the University of Richmond to play football there had a scholarship, ended up with a heart problem, couldn't play. So I ended up in college kind of starting to work with this scouting service called The War Room. Um, and uh, and I, it was always Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf. Who do you like? And I loved Ryan Leaf. I just thought you were <laughs> – I thought there, there was a lot of sizzle to you. Uh, yeah. And, and coming to learn now more about your story, a lot of that was, was a bravado, uh, came from a place of fear. Yeah, I just uh, you know didn't want didn't want people to know who who I was, um, who I really was, right? You know, the flaws, the the scars, the warts that come like like real life. You know, when you get placed on that pedestal, uh, it, it and you watch how other people react and and treat you. You don't want anybody ever to take that away, right? And and the worst thing that could happen there is if I let anybody in uh, to what was really going on. So you basically grow up, you grow up in, in Great Falls, Montana. You are, Montana never had anybody get drafted uh, up until Ryan Leaf. The, the Manning family. Well, no, nobody, nobody in the, nobody in the first round. Yeah. Okay. In the first round. And, and the Manning family had more first round picks than the state of Montana, <laughs> as you put it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little, it's a little uh, uh, joke that I like to say when I open up my speeches a lot just to kind of give people a, an idea of, of where I've come from and, and what it was like. What, what was it like growing up in Great Falls being a, a superstar athlete? Were you always really good? Did it come easily? or? Yeah, I was, I was uh, head and shoulders better than everybody at everything I did. Um, and it was, it was extremely difficult growing up uh, in that small town. Uh, you know, my heroes were the Fab Five at Michigan, Jalen Rose, you know, that, that wasn't welcomed uh, where I grew up and, uh, and no one really knew how to, to handle me, right. With, with kid gloves or with the uh, stern ruling, you know, type of thing. So once I became this, this, you know, far and away, you know, golden armed quarterback, like that platform just grew and grew and grew. And, uh, no one really knew how to handle that. Yeah, especially my family. Well, well, and we'll get into your story. Your parents were. Uh, your dad was a two-tour uh, Vietnam vet. Your mom was was uh, I guess a nurse, right? Yeah, yeah. They worked uh, blue-collar job, jobs. You know, my dad, uh, really my hero, uh, and what he did and what he sacrificed, and who he was, his character, 
And my mom, yeah, she was in the service business, right? She served others. She delivered babies uh, as an RN for, I think, my whole childhood, you know, and uh, was the eldest of five daughters and really was like a second mother to them all, um, you know, while they were growing up and stuff like that. So when she had children of her own, uh, it was kind of second nature to her to have that, that that mother gene, that that DNA that existed you know, her whole life. And following your story, man, you you really kind of you drank a little bit, right? You partied a little bit, and, and I think you said in high school and in college, but you really didn't start to abuse no. the opioids, right? No, like, not at all. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't drink until my 18th birthday. Um, you know, I looked at people who drank or did drugs as morally bankrupt, right? Uh, and so the irony in all of this is that I would end up in a prison cell because of a drug addiction, right? Yeah. Um, but I always, you know, felt like it was, um, if I ever did drink in college, it was simply to get outside myself, to be uninhibited, to, uh, you know, numb fear, doubt, uh, anxiety through that whole process. And that's ultimately uh, exactly why I ended up abusing uh, opiate painkillers down the line is because I just, I didn't want to feel anything. Well, looking back, because you were such a, an amazing athlete and so notable and, and people kind of probably opened doors for Ryan Leaf and kissed your ass. Was, was that almost a drug for you? Like, was there an arrested development that started as a teenager? Yeah. It, uh, it, it, it was right around 13 years old, you know, but it was rather the opposite. Like, like doors weren't really open for me. Now consequences, weren't as dear for me because coaches, regardless of how they felt about me, they needed me on the football field or the baseball diamond or the basketball court because I was their best player, right? And how they kept their job. But the other side of that coin was, uh, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't a popular kid, right? I, uh, I, I competed so hard. I pushed people away. And of course the parents didn't like how I, I, I played, uh, the game, you know, I, they felt like it was more about me than it was about we. Uh, and there's probably some truth in that, but it was the only way I thought or knew that I could get out of this small town, right? To, to get to where I wanted to get was to push and push and push at every possible uh, situation until I was able to break free uh, of this small town and get to where I wanted to get. When did you come to the realization that, hey, I, you know, in right, wrong, or indifferent, I, I need to get out of here. I'm, I'm, I'm way bigger than this place. Uh, as far as I, as far back as I can remember, I was like, this, this is uh, maybe, maybe because how competitive I got and how the the local um, community mm-hmm. treated me. I think maybe that is what ultimately spurned it, and and how. Um, how angry uh, and judgmental they were of just a kid. And that's where I think I started to really uh, build the kindling and the fire to, to get out of there, make it big so I could, you know, have that I told you so moment and shove it and rub it in their faces. Yeah, and that's part of your competitive streak, right? A competitive gene that, that aids to your success. And it's such a tightrope when you get sober because all that will – you got to kind of put on the shelf. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to see how I compete these days. Right. You know, <laughs> uh, and, and especially with raising a son, watching him uh, and how he uh, feels like it needs to win at everything too. You know, and I, I want that competitive edge to him, but I also want him to understand like it's not the end of the world either. If you, if you don't win, um, it's an opportunity uh, to do it better the next time. And that's something that was never, uh, that was always lost on me. I just I thought there was no gray area. It was either black or white. Yeah, you 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 mentioned that you 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 or, or was there alcoholism in your family? Yeah, I didn't know about it. I didn't know about it uh, in, until later in life. But apparently, my grandfather uh, struggled with alcohol, um, and he was a very extroverted person, uh, very respected in his community, and. Um, my mom and, and the family had to cover up for him a ton and were, were embarrassed by that. 
And so when my mom saw similar traits and behaviors in me, uh, it, it was muscle memory for her, right, to, uh, to protect uh, me, protect image. And it's, I think, where I first developed really the, the, the skill set to, to be less honest, right, dishonest, uh, and non-transparent or vulnerable because, um, again, we don't want anybody to see, um, see these scars, see these warts you know, all the things that are real life. Um, Especially when you're, when you're, you know, as you develop into this athlete and this superstar, when you're, you know, I, again, I can relate to you in a sense that, you know, everybody, you know, you were awesome and and I wasn't, but I, I, I knew back in the, back being an athlete at that time, you never stood up and said, Hey, I, you know, I'm having emotional problems or I got a, no one did. Yeah. So there's no roadmap for that. No, there's no roadmap. I've never grown up in the, the cowboy culture of Montana and then the, the locker rooms of the college football and the NFL. No, you never have seen anybody else do it. So how do you have a directional map to do it when you're struggling or going through it? Like, you know, there were so many times I wish I could have said, Hey, I'm, I'm not that guy. I'm just this, you know, kind of redneck kid from Montana who just wants to play sports and be like, that's, what I wanted to be. And I could never be any of those things. I had to be, um, I had to be the best possible, um, athlete and win. And that's how I, how I got over people. And that's how I uh, spurned the judgment and the fear and the anger through it all. So basketball was your true love, but football was what you ended up. Obviously was, was, was your strength. Yeah. I, I, I love basketball. It was, far back as I can remember, you know, football was always, I loved anything I could compete at, but basketball was so much more uh, about the individual, right? When you're playing baseball or or, or football, it's really a a huge team game, but on the basketball side of things, you know, it's, you're not wearing a helmet. uh, People can see you. uh, You can express your, your personality a little bit more. And then I was, uh, and all my heroes that I looked up to were, were basketball players, right? It was, Michael Jordan, it was Magic Johnson, and uh, it was the Fab Five and Jalen Rose and, and Scotty Tippen. Those those were were my heroes growing up, and so I wanted to be like them. And it's and, funny in that culture, right? Because again, me and you being around the same age, those guys were expressing themselves, but they weren't necessarily. You talk about the Fab Five, accepted by the society, the suburban society that I was raised in. So when I started to wear the shorts and the socks, people are like, "What the hell is your problem?" Yep, that's exactly what it was. People in Montana were not, uh, they were not okay with that. Uh, they did not like, uh, you know, I wore, the, I wore the, the shorts down to my knees. I wore my socks pulled up to my uh, black socks I, I had on. I wore gold shoes in the state tournament, and it was just like, it was, it was like, um, like a nuclear bomb had, a bomb had gone off <laughs> when I did that. You know, it's just, it's so strange to think back at it now. And that's where I got the, like, you know, the end of the world feelings. Like, you know, I was being told how, how bad I was, right? It was a shaming quality. Um, and I could have chosen to deal with it, you know, in a multitude of different ways and uh, a multitude of different healthy ways. But also I was just a kid, right? So um, that, that's where I always have to go back and look at it. I was like, I was just a kid when, when I was being shamed like this by my community and my and some of my family and things like that. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't know I was being told I was bad. And, and then when you go on and become extremely successful, uh, the past trauma in your life of being told that you're bad, all of a sudden starts to become that problem uh, with the media, the fan base, like that, that, that's triggering. And what was my way of answering those um uh, uh, those triggers was to fight back, right? Back into a corner. Um, and how did I fight? I fought with bravado, ego, uh, and resentment. That's how I, how I went about my business. Well, I mean, it was based on the fact that, look, um, you went to Washington State, and I know there were a lot of good players on that team, but you you almost willed Washington State to, to the Rose Bowl, right? I mean, 
that was a program that really wasn't on the radar for a lot of people until Ryan Leaf shows up. I mean, it had like Tim Rosenbaugh. There had been players here and there, but this is from a national perspective. You know, when you show up, or Bledsoe, of course, too. When you show up, though, uh, they're back on the map. Uh, wh- how intoxicating was that for you? You mentioned that Mike Price, the head coach, calls you uh, when the Rose Bowl is on, and he says to you, hey, we'll play in this game if you come to Washington State. And you go there, and yeah. you're, you're freaking playing there. I know. It's, uh, it's a dream come true. It was the best decision I ever made. And I felt like uh, I was a part of something there, right? Um, I was like everybody else. I was the best athlete from their high school. And we were all together. And we were all fighting and working towards uh, a common goal. And we achieved it. But like anything else, if there's a possibility of a higher level of play in anything you do, that pedestal can rise again. And it, it did just that, right? I mean, the next stop was the NFL. I, I should have never made it to the NFL. Are you kidding me? I'm the only Montana ever to be drafted in the first round of the NFL draft. So the odds of me making it were astronomical. I shouldn't even have been there. Yeah. And um, so when that pedestal started to rise again, I, I just figured what I had done my whole life was the right way, right? It's gotten me here, uh, you know, and, and people were critical of me in, in some senses and, and, and pointed things out and were judgmental. I thought, well, why am I here and you're not then? So I had to have been doing something right. Yeah. And I had. I just, when you get to the highest level with the most competitive people in the world, the most talented people in the world, you have to be able to evolve. You have to be able to change in a positive and healthy way. Otherwise, you're just going to be out on your ass like that. You know, there are 27,000 of us ever to play in the NFL. That's it, in 100 years of football. And you were uh, the, the second pick of the so draft, small. dude. You're the second yeah. pick of the draft. And yeah. what's the biggest – well, first of all, what's the drinking like in, in college, just once in a while? Yeah, I mean – I was a binge drinker in college. Uh, Did you, know, you notice it had a different effect on you? Uh, like, you know, like I always say, you know, it, 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 I was able to talk to girls and, you know, the 10 feet tall. Oh, yeah, bulletproof yeah definitely. Yeah. yeah, definitely. You know, it allowed me to kind of uh, um, take on the, the big man on campus uh, persona, right? Because I, I wasn't that guy. I would have loved anything more than just to sit at home, uh, watch some, some movies and videos or, or play video games. Um, you know, but if I did go out, uh, there was a uh, there was a point to it. The point was to get messed up, uh, so I had less inhibition and could be what everybody uh, assumed I I would be. And I just I kind of fed into the narrative, right? I was a self fulfilling prophecy essentially. And you kind of start to believe your own bullshit a little bit, right? Oh yeah, I mean I believe it. I thought I was I thought I was better than everybody else. I, I felt that way for a long, long time. I think it was a defense mechanism. Um, you know, I was a, an egomaniac with a self-esteem problem. That's yeah. the best way to define me. Yeah. So you get you get to why you get to San Diego. You win you, you win your first two games with like the first rookie ever to do that. Peyton Manning uh, is drafted before you, and obviously one of the best quarterbacks of all time. Like that's that sucks, right? People call you a bust, but that's like only punctuated by the fact that this guy is one of the best of all time. Uh, and you win your first two games, and then what the hell happens? Because look, I remember following you then, it was like, wow, this is it, man. You know, this is this is good. This guy's brought San Diego back, and he's going to be the best player in the NFL. What what happened? Take us inside there. What happens? Um, I was humiliated and embarrassed in my performance. I'd never played a bad game in my life. So this is your th- this is your third game at Kansas City. You're two and zero. And you have a rough outing. It isn't a rough outing. It's the, it's the worst quarterback performance ever in the history of, it, of the NFL. Um, I was in the hospital all week with a staph infection uh, after our win against the Oilers uh, in Tennessee that week. And I chose to play. I needed to play. I wanted to play. I was Nothing was going to keep me off that field. And it was a poor choice. Uh, it was a terrible weather game. Rain, monsoon. Uh, was an incredible defense led by Derek Thomas. And I played the worst game of my life. Uh, and I was embarrassed and I was humiliated and I handled it as poorly as you can possibly handle it. 
I'm not I'm not uh, considered a bust because of, um, of of how poor I played. I'm I'm a bust because of how I dealt with it. Yeah, and it's like everything that happens to us is how we react. And you know, to, to what you're saying and, and to what you've said, you reacted poorly. I mean, after that game, you kind of get a cameraman out of the way, and then. What's, what was the guy, the writer's name from from the San Diego Tribune the next day? That's when you told you told that guy off at your locker. Fucking don't talk to me, all right? Knock it off! He was caught on camera in the locker room yelling at a reporter. Yeah, Jay Posner, and it was caught on video and kind of became, you know, the internet had just really started. Uh, it was one of those first really viral videos that kind of, you know, was a caricature of, of who I was going to be painted as the rest of my career. I mean, people still talk about how I berated and yelled at reporters my whole career. I mean, I, I did it one time, <laughs> but, it, but it's, but that's the one time that, that solidifies that. So it makes sense. What's, what's the nightlife happening for you? You're a rookie in San Diego. You got some of your boys out there with you. Uh, what's yeah, whatever, I, whatever I wanted to do, uh, you know, had girls throwing themselves at me. Um, you know, you know, I was I was a 22 year old millionaire uh, living in in one of the best cities in America, right? So yeah, I was uh, I was not focused on football. I was focused on on other things because I thought I'd made it, and I thought it was going to be as easy as it had always been for me. Just you know, I didn't realize you had to start working harder uh, because I had worked extremely hard to get to where I was at, and uh, and it, it, it then because of that, it, it came easy to me. It's a it's a whole different story. You you have to take it to another level. That's why, like I said, that's, there's only twenty seven thousand that existed, and there's only three hundred and fifty so Hall of Famers ever. Because you, you have to take it to a different level. You have to have a different mindset, uh, and it cannot be that of distraction at all. Well, on the field, what's the biggest difference between college football? playing in the Pac-12 Pac or Pac-10 at the time, and the NFL? The speed. Uh, not, not, uh, not in a certain position, every position, right? Uh, when a 310-pounder in the defensive line uh, in college, no way can he um, run you down outside the pocket. And I remember the first time I tried to bail outside the pocket, and I thought I was easily out on the edge and could get around and make a throw. All of a sudden, I just felt my body get ripped down from behind because that six foot five, three hundred and fifteen pound defensive tackle can run as fast as I can. Um, and in college, we ran the five wides a ton, and no matter what, there was always a matchup I could pick up, pick on, uh, uh, because they didn't have five good enough defensive backs to deal with my wide receivers. Yes. But in college, you're nick. But in college, but in the pros, you're you're nickelback. The guy that comes in for third downs only is some university's best cornerback from the year before, right? The best player. So it, 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 the talent level just jumps up like I don't think anybody's business understands. It's just a, it's a different world in terms of talent and speed. And if you are not finding uh, – if you're just relying on the fact that you're super talented, um, that's not going to be good enough. You know, you, you talk about – your life uh, on this, you know, you do a ton of stuff, Ryan. You, you, you're, you're in the recovery field. You're, you're still an analyst for, for ESPN. You got your podcast called Bust uh, with Kevin Conley on, on Action Park Media, uh, which is awesome. You kind of take it chapter by chapter going into your life. And part of the, some of the stuff you talk about is mental health. You know, you talk about your addiction, but you also shine a light on mental health. What are you doing as a player that's young, starts to get his ass kicked, has an attitude problem? How are you coping with all this shit that's happening to you? Uh, I, I'm coping in self-gratification, right? Anything that can make me feel more important uh, or right, right? I surrounded myself with yes men, uh, people who enabled my behavior, told me I was the victim, that I was right, it was everybody else's fault. Um, I, I, I did not choose any um, positive or healthy way uh, about dealing with things. I, I chose definitely the negative and toxic avenue. And, uh, you know, it could, 
really be the poster child for how not to deal with something once you've made it to the highest possible level you can. Uh, just, just flat out. And, and, and this isn't to put a name on, on them or blame them, but Bobby Bethridge, your GM in San Diego, I think Mike Riley's the head coach. But the NFL, as we mentioned, just kind of back then really wasn't up to speed with the mental health stuff. How Was there any infrastructure for you inside that organization? Like, hey, Ryan's kind of coming unglued here emotionally. We got to get him to see somebody or, or whatever. Yeah, they did. They found a sports psychologist for me. Uh, and I just saw that as uh, a giant screw you. Um, again, because I the stigma meant that there was something wrong with me. When that would have been okay. Yeah, there's something wrong with me. So I need to address it and, and get better. But the stigma has existed for so long um, that I went and saw. And the only reason I went and saw them is because I think there was a stipulation that they were going to withhold some of my signing bonus money if I didn't go see this, this psychologist. And I, I can't remember one thing uh, <laughs> of our sessions together, not one thing. I don't think I was present ever in my mind with him at any point. At what, at what point, people say, you know, you were, you were treating people, certain people, like shit. Is that true? Was, is there more made of that? Or was it part of, hey, th- this, because I had it too. It's that born on third base, thought I hit a triple, sense of entitlement. Um, but here you are on this incredible stage. W- were, were you treating people poorly, or is that more, more is made of that than it was? I think it's been exaggerated, but I also think that if confronted or if I felt threatened in any way, um, or if I felt defensive in any way, yeah, I think I did treat people extremely poorly in those in those instances. Um, you know, and if I was drinking uh, and I was out in the public eye and I was drinking, I'm sure I was the entitlement part of it all. Yeah. Um, any consequences you know, I, for you? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No. There weren't any consequences. Now, I mean, of course, there. I mean, yeah, I, I, I was, you know, I was, yeah, ultimately, I was booted out of the NFL and and uh, and and all of that that comes with it. So yeah, there's definitely ultimately consequences because, um, you know, like anything, you know, if you're going to continue to do something uh, insane, uh, nothing changes unless unless something changes. And there's a, there's a little known fact about Ryan Leaf, and of course you are Ryan Leaf, so you, you can you feel free to correct me. But you kind of got your shit together, like personally, and like the reason you left the NFL was because of injuries. No, I mean, and and also, I mean, you you probably could have had a decent career as a backup when you were with the Bucks and the Cowboys. Like I don't remember hearing stuff like that you were being a, a pain in the ass anymore. You kind of kept your head down and, and did a nice job. You quit, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you left Seattle. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, when I couldn't be the starting quarterback, I thought that was the ultimate uh, failure. And if I can't be the starter, then I'm not going to play. That was my, I'm going to take my ball and go home. Um, I didn't have, I, I took things for granted. Like the idea that I could get paid handsomely for the remainder of my career. Like if I could have followed the, the Rick Meyer yeah. approach to the NFL, uh, I could have been around for years and years and years and made a bunch of money and been a backup. And uh, yeah, when I got to Tampa Bay, I got taken under the wing of that defense, guys on that defense, Eric Brooks, Rondé Barber, John Lynch, Booger McFarland, Warren Sapp, Simeon Rice, um, you know, Shelton Corals, all those guys. Uh, and then Warwick Dunn on the offensive side, Brad Johnson and Coach Dungy. I mean, they just they welcomed me in. And, um, you know, I, I learned how to be a, a pro quarterback. I really learned how to be a pro quarterback really from Jim Harbaugh that final year in San Diego. Just not in enough time before I, I, I got shipped off um, and released. But, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, my stops in Dallas and Tampa and Seattle, they were – uh, they were fine. There wasn't the same boorish behavior because I think I'd been humbled a little bit. And, uh, but ultimately I wasn't as talented with a, with the injury to my wrist. And I was, uh, humiliated that I wasn't the starting quarterback anymore, that I was going to have to battle for a second or third string job in this league. And, and as um, so often as we hear it, 
you, over the course of your career, you, you get injured uh, and, you, and you take painkillers, but you don't become addicted. But you are, you are taking them. What is the cycle like? Because you had a chronic injury to your hand, right? Yeah, I mean, when you, after a game uh, in the NFL, when you got on a plane, when you were flying or when you were at home, you know, the team doctor would just, you know, pop a couple Vicodin in your hand and you'd be on your way and you'd take them for the first couple days of the week and then then uh, you'd, you'd stop taking them and get ready to play on Sunday. That's just the way it was. Uh, I never abused them while I was uh, playing in the NFL. I loved to blame my poor play and my boorish behavior on the fact that I was engrossed in a, a tragic drug addiction at the time. Not the truth. <laughs> I didn't start abusing it until after I was out of the NFL when I needed it for the emotional aspect of my pain. When is the first uh, that's time when I that's you started to abuse it? When is the first time? Because I like to ask people, hey, when was the first time you had a drink or whatever? You said, you, you know, your first drink was 18. But when was the first time you abused the pain meds and, and we were off to the races? Uh, I was in Las Vegas. I was there for a fight. Uh, you know, Vegas was a, a good place for me because I could kind of hide in plain sight. Um, but when there were big events, which is usually when we wanted to go to Vegas for fights and things like that, uh, there were parties afterwards where there were, you know, um, peers of mine that were Hall of Famers and Super Bowl champions where I always felt less than and judged and all of those things. And an acquaintance of mine that night uh, offered me some Vicodin, uh, and I took them, and, and I didn't feel any of that judgment, fear, anxiety. Uh, I was at the MGM Grand. They were announcing celebrities in the audience, and they announced my name, and the whole place booed and hissed and uh, what my addict mind, because I'm, I'm a drug addict, uh, regardless if I've ever taken a drug in my life and, and how I behave and how I act. Um, I, uh, I heard not only are you a terrible football player, but you're an awful human being. That's what my addict brain heard. And sure enough, that night when I took those pills, like all of that judgment and fear and self-loathing uh, went away. And uh, I think I've been searching for that feeling for a long time, the feeling of not feeling anything. That would be my answer for now uh, and for the next eight years of my life. Well, and, and I just want to get, get a broad uh, a perspective, I guess, from you on this. Not, not necessarily broad, but you, we talked about alcohol. And, and the opioid crisis today is out of control. And you're on the front lines now, on the right side of it, sharing your story. But how much, you know, the stakes have been raised, I, I feel like, in my opinion. I'm a 12-step guy. Uh, but, you know, in, in, in the literature of the big book, it says, hey, you know, go out and try some more controlled drinking if you don't think you're an alcoholic. Right. You can't right. do that shit with opioids. No, you no, no. I mean, you, I mean, you could. You're just gonna yeah. end up back in prison or dead. Yeah, and it's the, and I works. guess what I'm getting at is the acceleration, right? Uh, for you, you go right back. You go right back to what your last, uh, your your the last thing you remember and how you used, and that's usually why you see so many overdoses and deaths of individuals who just get out of rehab or uh, have been clean for a long time because you only know one speed. It's all gas, no brakes. And that's not how that works. Your tolerance has been built up like nobody's business. And, um, and we see a, a ton of deaths and, and lives lost because of it. So yeah, I, I, I completely understand where you're coming from on that end of things. How did your use accelerate? 2002, you mentioned you're at the fight. What fight was it? A Tyson fight? I thought it was a Tyson fight. I've been rebuked with that. The Tyson didn't fight at, at the MGM. In the, you know, there's a lot of people. So I, it, it was. It could have been an MMA fight. Okay. It could have uh, been a, a De La Hoya fight. I, 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 you know, it was a, it was a, it was a big, big, uh, big fight. I know that. So you go to the big fight, the big fight night in Vegas, and then you're you're off and running. What happens between 2002 and you know 2010? I mean, it's. It's it's epic, right? This this fall from from Grace. Uh, you know, you're two and zero as a second pick in the NFL draft, and you're second in the Heisman. Uh, and then the guys in front of you in the Heisman is Charles Woodson, and in the draft for Peyton Manning. I mean, you're sitting pretty there, two games in your NFL career, and now, you know, in 2010, you're going to prison. What happens in between 2002 and 2010? It's just a it's just a gradual decline, you know. Uh, yeah starting to uh, use opioids as a way of coping, uh, believing you're doing uh, the wrong thing the right way by going to doctors. Um, but 
How hard was it to get you these prescriptions, to get the prescriptions? Like, you know, you're Ryan Leaf and you're doctor shopping. Nothing. It's it's nothing. I didn't have to doctor shop back then either. I only had to go to one doctor one time, right? Um, Doctors didn't care, right? If you were in any way, shape, or form in pain and they were being lied to by the Sackler family, they were being told that these were non-addictive, right? The Sacklers, they were the big, big pharma, right? Like, uh, yeah. And Purdue, Purdue Pharma, That's they were, they, their, their sales reps were telling these doctors and telling them that, hey, you know, this isn't, this, this drug is not addictive, right? It's, uh, it's got the stamp of approval from the, uh, from the uh, uh, um, FCC, you know, uh, or the FAA, sorry. Yeah. Uh, or, uh, FDA, FDA. Yeah, the, the FDA, the Food and Drug yeah. Administration, you know, they were, uh, and so doctors were like, oh, this guy's in pain. You know, let me help him with this pain. And and so it, it, it was easy, right, to walk into a doctor's office and say, I'm in pain. I'm in physical pain. Here's the x-rays to show it. I wasn't honest with them and told them the emotional pain I was in and, and now the addiction cycle that I was in. How fast are you so going through these? Um, 100 pills, 10 days, so 10 pills a day. I had to have 100 milligrams a day. However, that shaked out. Yeah, okay. if, I could find five, if I could find five milligram pills, then it was 20 pills a day. Uh, if I found the 10 milligram pills from doctors, it was the, you know, it was 10 pills a day. So, you know, it was, uh, it was a constant need. Every single morning, I wake up and, and and look at myself in the mirror and think, all right, uh, do I have pills? And if I don't, how do I get them? That Dude, was, that's that it. You life. wake up first foot on the floor, right? How am I getting? How am I getting high today? How am I getting what I? And it's kind of like I was. I guess at the end I wasn't. I, look at me. I'm so full of shit. I want to call myself like a white collar addict, but at the end, I was robbing and stealing to get what I needed. But I was trying to keep my stuff together, and uh, but and, and keep it together on the outside and be like, okay, how can I get my stuff look okay today and go through life? And uh, it was a nightmare. Yeah, it, it was a nightmare. I mean, there is when I when I looked at myself in the mirror, I was honest with myself. I, I I saw the junkie, right? I saw who I was, and I clamored for somebody to help me, just not to anybody in particular, just to the universe. And my higher power sent, you know, plenty of opportunities um, when when it would become sketchy in any way, shape, or form. Maybe some little thing that would get on the radar of a family member or something like that, and they'd confront me. Uh, you know, instead of you know, surrendering to that and accepting any help, I, I, I pushed them out of my life, right? I still have the money, the power, the prestige, right? That was what success was. You weren't going to tell me anything. And so I, I surrounded myself with people that uh, didn't want to rock the boat because they, they saw me as the golden goose, right? They, they wanted to enjoy this ride as long as they could too. When did all those people fall off? Oh, pretty quickly, right? You know, when, when, when the money started to run out and then the, uh, and then the, and the arrests started to pile up. Uh, the yeah, first, the first consequence you're coaching at West Texas state, right? That's the first like legal thing. Yeah. First time I've had, ever had any interaction with the police. Yeah, for sure. What happened? I stole from my, my players. That's what happened. I was uh, going to, I was doctor shopping all over the panhandle of Texas, uh, fueling my drug habit. And so ultimately uh, the, the injured, players on the team I was coaching, uh, I would go to and, uh, and uh, manipulate uh, a way to get their pills uh, and, uh, to, you know, to, to feed my habits. That's, that's where it ultimately cost me uh, my job. Um, whatever uh, reputation I had, it was about a failed football player, maybe a boorish behavior of a guy. But now it was, now it was going to be different. Now it was drug addicts and criminal and uh, even more shame that was coming my way. So uh, that's where it happened. That's where I got my first introduction to recovery and AA um, when I went to treatment. And, uh, and unfortunately, you know, I had to be further humbled before I would actually figure it out. So how many years were you between when you get arrested the first time and, and you, you finally stop? Uh, I got arrested the first time in I think 2000 and, uh, the West Texas state thing. Yeah. I think that came in, uh, 
I think I came in the fall of 2009. Okay. Uh, and then I was arrested um, for the final time, March 30th, 2012. So about two and a half years. And this is the last, this is the last we'll get into this, but just so people can get an eye, because the idea of this podcast, people can kind of drop in and see, you know, the payoff of, of the, a good life in sobriety. But at the end for you, you're walking into people's houses in the suburbs, right? Knocking on the door. Oh yeah. What, so what well, you... it wasn't the suburbs, it was Montana. So it's the, it's the outskirts of town. It's, it's ranches and things like that. No one, no one locks their doors in Montana. Um, you know, I knock on the door, open it, yell, is anybody here? And if no one was, you know, I'd, I'd go in and I'd, uh, you know, I'd go through their medicine cabinet or their, or their cabinets in the kitchen. And nine times out of 10, I'd find some sort of opioid, opioid painkiller. And, and, you know, the ends justify the means. I had a ton of guilt and shame around what I was doing, what I had to do to feed this habit and who I was, but it was all gone the moment those were in my hand, not even in my system, just in my hand, knowing I was going to get to take them. And I knew what the result from doing that would be. And I was not feel any of that shame and guilt about who I was, who I'd become, what I was having to do to feed it. Uh, that was, that was the answer. Fortunately for me, uh, I'm a terrible criminal. And it <laughs> didn't take too long for me to be found out by the police. And the sheriff's department showed up one night to save my life. And uh, that's what they did on uh, March 30th, 2012. So did you find, by the way, real quick, my, I remember I was in a, like a recovery house, a halfway house, and this young guy, his name was Max, and he uh, hopefully still is Max, right? But he said, I remember looking um, at the stuff of my parents I was going to take and then sell, and I knew it was wrong, but it just made the most sense in the world at the same time, and I had to do it over and over and over again. And that's like what we go through. Um, there was no consequence. There was never going to be a consequence near enough because I wanted to be dead. So like, you know, what consequence was going to be worse than, 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 that, than that? And I was searching for that freedom, right? So there was just no consequence that was, was going to be dear enough to stop me from, I just, you know, I didn't want anybody to know, you know, and that, that continued with that hiding and um, and trying to live the, the perfect life um, and not let anybody know. So when that all happened, when I got arrested and bonded out and the whole world finds out once again, like, you know, when I screw up, it isn't yeah. anonymous. When, <laughs> I, when I screw up, it's on the, it's on the ticker of, of, of sports center on ESPN. You know, that's, that's, everybody knows I'm a giant screw up. And, uh, and they took all my pills away when I got arrested. So I was like, what am I going to do? I, I, I can't feel this way. I can't feel all of this. So my only answer was I needed to find more pills or I needed to be dead. And that was my answer in all of this. And luckily, again, um, I went out and screwed up uh, within 48 hours of my arrest. So you bind, you bind it out and you stole some pills again and got caught again and that was it. Yep, and that was it. And I got thrown in there, and I never got back out again until I was released. Did you uh, Did you look for recovery in jail? No, you didn't. But but you but you no. didn't. I mean, there were drugs in jail or prison, I would assume. But you didn't do that either. No, I just uh, I just disappeared in a haze of uh, selfishness, uh, depression, uh, angst, and anxiety, and that's and I just sat on my ass. Uh, ballooned up to about 325 pounds uh, and was just hoping to die in there, either from a stroke or, uh, you know, some 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 crazy thing where somebody killed me in my sleep or something like that. I was just kind of praying for it every single night. And this is, this is hard to imagine, but I, I guess not. You hear people talk about this and when they deliver inspiring stories of recovery. Was there a time you could point at in prison that was a turning point for you where, where you found hope? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I, I, and I didn't necessarily know it at the time. My roommate uh, was an Afghan-Iraqi war veteran, and he had made amends for what he had done and tried to better himself every single day. And I just always looked at him with such, like, um, like, like oddity of why, why would he 
why would he do, be doing something like this? I mean, we're, we're losers. We're in prison. And one day he felt comfortable enough to, I guess, uh, confront me. And he said, uh, Brian, you don't understand the value that you have, not only for the men in here, but for when you get out at some point, because you're going to get out at some point. And he suggested we go down to the prison library and help prisoners who don't know how to read learn how to read. And uh, I've had many of those come-to-Jesus moments in my life from mentors and coaches and family and friends, and I just told them all to go to hell. For whatever reason, maybe because the substance had been on my system for 26 months, but uh, um, I went. I went with them. You know, still begrudgingly a little bit. I remember walking down the hallway in my red jumpsuit in prison thinking, this is stupid. This isn't going to help me. Doesn't even know how important I am. The irony of that, of course, is the guy that's in the prison jumpsuit in prison still thinks he's important. <laughs> and, uh, and I Sounds walk about into that right. library. Yeah, I walk into that library and for the first time ever in my life, uh, another man says, Brian, I can't read, I need help, can you help me? Never heard that in my whole life. And I heard it in the place where you're supposed to show none of that, show no, no vulnerability, nothing that could get you hurt in a place like that. And uh, it really had to it really put a shift in my perspective, right? Like, was blown away by that. But, like, nothing changes if, unless you continue to do that. Like, you don't go one day and then everything's better. You don't go to the gym one day and the next day you wake up and look in the mirror and you look like the rock, right? It's about consistency. Yeah. It's about showing up. And so I kept going back. Well, dude, and what you just and, said, it's like vulnerability breeds vulnerability. Like, and that's kind of what recovery is about. And that's the magic in all this stuff. It's like, you know, a guy in prison telling you he can't read and kind of showing that vulnerability. And then all of a sudden you feel good because you're in service and you're actually doing something. That's exactly right. I, I started sleeping better. Uh, I was more personable. I was talking to my family. And I came to the realization that it was because I was being of service to another human being for the first time in my life. And I knew it was going to have to be at the forefront and the foundation of who I was moving forward or nothing was going to change. So when I walked out of those, those prison doors, December 3rd, 2014, uh, that was the path. I had no idea what was ahead of me. Uh, I had no future. I had no prospects. I had no money. You know, the Disney Corporation wasn't waiting outside there to hire me to call college football games. <laughs> um, I had hope, and I had developed that hope because of what I had done while I was in prison. So, um, But it was a continuation from that point on. It had to be uh, – it could never be about me again. It had to be about everybody else. So for people that, you know, don't – for people that uh, – I, I know for me I had the gift of desperation, right? I say that all the time, but you come out of prison, your life on paper is a shipwreck, but you've got yeah. that, you've got that hope. You've got that fire burning inside. What did you do to put together a life of recovery? I just started putting one foot in front of the other. That's it. Initially it was just, you know, going for walks and meditating and praying to ultimately being accepted uh, by my parole officer that I was, uh, worthy to go down and seek treatment in Southern California. Because uh, they won't let you, know, you go right right to rehab, right? No, they're like, no one's ever, they've never seen it before. No one gets out of an institution and wants to go into another <laughs> institution. So I would, I, I'm the president. And he's like, I've never, I've never seen this before. Why would you want to do that? I don't trust this. There's something down there that you want to get to that, you know, that, you know, there had to be a trust there that ultimately came. And luckily for me, I was able to go and seek treatment and get the help that I needed because I was, I was so, I was still such a mess in terms of my physical health and my emotional health, right? My psychological health. And I needed that just because I hadn't taken a drug for almost three years. Uh, didn't mean I, I, I wasn't still the problem and I needed to address that. The you mental health side of this is the, uh, is the truth, right? The drug addict, uh, the drug use is a symptom of my mental health illness. What, what did you do for your mental health? Because one thing, well, I, actually, I want to jump back. One thing you mentioned, I heard you say this before, and it really was kind of a, 
I don't know, it was a light bulb for me. You said that everybody, and, and you know, I'm not, you didn't say this exactly, but it was like an idea. Everybody could use treatment, like 30 days of rehab to work on themselves after high school or college. We just don't have that implemented in our society, right? Like how to act like a person uh, when, when diversity hits and how to make yourself naturally feel better and help the fellow man. That's just a couple things I'm throwing out there. But when you said that, I, I was perked up. Yeah, I, I, I think it's hilarious, right? Uh, when, I, when I say that to people, because the stigma that revolves around rehab is like when we hear somebody say, oh, Lucy's in rehab. Oh, everybody's clutching their pearls. Oh. Yes. I want to hear something. I want to hear a different uh, 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 tone in your voice. Like, did you hear? Lucy's in rehab. Yeah. Like there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a an independence and a, and a, and a confidence in a, to that. And so I, I, I do, I say, I said, if, you know, if people choose not to go to college, then when they graduate from high school, if they choose to go to college, when they graduate from college, but the first thing they do is go spend uh, 30 days in, in a rehab facility working on life skills and on themselves. When will you ever do that? in your lifetime, unless you're forced to do it. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I, I it, it's an, an odd way of looking at it, but, but I, I think it's important. What starts to happen for your life? Uh, when you, when you get out of treatment, how, first of all, how long did you go? I stayed for 90 days. How important do you think um, that is? The long, like the longer for me, the long term thing. It's incredible because I watched, I watched individuals walk out of there 28 days on that pink balloon or pink bubble or whatever they call it. Um, pink cloud, right? And I look and I pink cloud and I look at them and I say, Hey, I'm going to give you my two cents here. Right. I'm three years sober. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm three years sober and I'm going to stay here for 90 days. That's, that's what this disease does. And sure enough, uh, you know, within, within weeks, uh, sometimes days, some of those people that walked out, after the 28 days on, on that pink cloud, we're back. Uh, and some were dead. I was about to say, I'm sure some of them were dead. So, um, you know, like anything, it's about consistency and it's about reps. It's the Malcolm Gladwell approach, right? 10,000 hours. You, you've got to put the work in to get the results. Otherwise, it's just half-assed it. And when you half-ass it, that addiction is doing, that disease, that illness is doing push-ups in the background the entire time and it's just strengthening themselves for the moment where you have that, that, that lack of focus or that uh, lack of energy or, or, or lack of perspective for sure. How was it for you to get back into regular life? Like when you got out of rehab, were you, were you single? Uh, oh yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I've been single. I think, uh, I think for, for six months out of rehab or, Six months after prison uh, um, is when I met my uh, my partner now, okay. and my 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 kid's mom, and we've been together for the last six years. How did you start to date? Like, I always think it's interesting to hear how sober guys dated. Like, how did you start to date? What was that like for you? Oh, well, it was uh, based in honesty, right? I mean, the first time I met her, I think I I told her uh, immediately because, like it, like anybody who's who has any kind of infamy uh, can be Googled. Um, I told her immediately. I, so I, I, I got out of prison six months ago. You know, I'm, I'm still living in a, in a sober living house. And uh, uh, I'd, I'd love to take you out to a movie tonight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I tell you what, I, surprisingly enough, that like honesty with women, vulnerability, transparency, like that, that's the key to success with women. It's not bravado. It's not money. It's not any of those things. It's, it's, it's vulnerability and transparency and, and honesty. That's, that's all they're looking for. And it's been the, the best, it's been the best of times when I am all of those things. When I'm not with her, that's when the relationship falls apart. It just, it just is. It's always been the case. It's the truest to form. And it will always be the case. Yeah. It's a, when my ego starts to go and tells myself I don't need meetings or I don't need this or that or I'm too good for this, 
I'm getting, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting set to not be vulnerable, right? I'm getting set to not show my partner, my girlfriend, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with this in a relationship now, you know, when I'm vulnerable, I feel a connection when I'm not, it's like, oh man, like I feel like a dick because, <laughs> because yeah. you just get what you get when you act like an egomaniac. Yeah, it's exactly the truth. Uh, I, I totally get that, that part of it all for me. How, so how do things start to develop for you career wise? as you get sober, because be, I think, you know, that's not what it's all about, but things start to, if you put sobriety and recovery first, like somebody like you, who's hit a quote unquote bottom, everything starts to fall into place. You know, I got a buddy of mine who says, if you were to drink again, this is to somebody who's, you know, sober, if you were to drink again, especially like a newcomer, we would never bet a, a, a nickel on you. But if you stay sober and, and work this program, like I bet the farm on you. And things just start to come into people's lives. What started to happen for you? It's totally true. The promises, like the idea, like this one girl came to LA one time and, and she asked her mom where she should show, where, where would be good, a good place to go like meet uh, a, a nice upstanding uh, gentleman. And she said, you should go to NAA meeting. <laughs> and I, I totally understand. I totally understand what she's talking about then. Uh, because I've met some of the best men in my life at these meetings because you're exactly right. You, you don't do any of those things that contributed to the addiction. And it's a, uh, an amazing, uh, amazing life that can come from it. The life of your dreams, really. It, it's the best way to put it. I thought, you know, the life of my dreams was simply, um, me being a professional athlete. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. All right, I got a couple more minutes with you, and then I'll let you let you get on with your life. But I, I, I was curious to know when you start to achieve like success, right back out in in the world. I mean, you're you're back on ESPN. You you know, you're calling games. You're speaking at schools. How do you manage that? How do you manage the success in 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 sobriety? Because that sometimes you know don't let the gifts of sobriety get in the way of the gifts of sobriety. How do you keep at it on a day to day? Well, you just, you keep doing what you've done to get you there, right? It's the, I don't think about too far. I don't think uh, about the future or the past. I think about today. And I figure if I do what I did yesterday, today, I'll lay my head down and be able to wake up and do it again tomorrow. That's, I go to meetings. Uh, I've surrounded myself with a, a board of directors, five guys that uh, mentor me that I go to for advice. So you have a, like a board of directors personally for yourself, kind of, right? That, yeah, that's, what, what, I, that's, that's yeah. what I call them. That's what I call them. I call them my board of directors. I, I'm the chairman. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I make the final decisions, but, you know, I go to them with, because, you know, my best thinking took me to a prison cell. That was a hard thing to admit, but it's true. Um, I don't make proper choices. I need help with that. And so uh, that's what I've done. I've gotten the help that I need and I continue to do it. And Hey, don't get me wrong. I still mess up. I still screw up all the time. I still deal with my mental illnesses because they're not going away. Right. It's not like once you start treating them, uh, they disappear, even though people treat you like your mental illness is gone because you address them, you still deal with it and you still have to deal with it on a daily basis. And, uh, and, and, and we believe I'm, I'm living with CTE, the, the brain trauma that comes from playing uh, football and having uh, brain injury. Um, you know, uh, my body's starting to break down a little bit. So the understanding of what that looks like, you know, I started to develop a, a tremor uh, in my extremities. And that's, that's, that scared the hell out of me. I went and, when did this, and, when did this develop? How long ago? Uh, about July. Okay. So just about half a year now. So I'm, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm fighting my way through it like everybody else. And, but I know the only way I can have any semblance of a life is to make it about other people and, and be of service. That's the only way. Uh, it's the only way I'm going to be a good partner. It's the only way I'm going to be a good dad. Uh, any of it is, is, is going to be about uh, being of service uh, to others, flat out. All right, a couple more things. What do you tell, what's, a, what's one thing you, one of your go-tos in recovery? Yeah, is it a mantra? Is it a prayer? Is it something a way you connect with people that, that helps you get through the day or that you share, let's say with somebody you're sponsoring or something. Uh, I use this affirmation every morning. Uh, I've been using it for six years. Uh, what other people think of me is none of my business. And it is, uh, it, it finally took root. It finally took hold and I flat out believe it. Um, 
So I, I don't care what anybody else has to say or think or, or, or if they do anything uh, anymore. Uh, this is about me. Uh, recovery is a very selfish program because the only way you're going to be any worth, any worth to anybody else is if you're the best possible version of yourself. Uh, and the only way to do that is to make it all about your recovery uh, and be selfish in that. That's the only way that you come out the other end uh, making this work. So that's a big part of it. Um, when I'm asked uh, by anybody in the recovery world to, to be of service, uh, I do it. I, I, I don't say no um, because um, I'm never too busy to uh, try to save somebody's life. And that's, that's the best way to, to take it. And I make a gratitude list every single night. You know, I just, I, I, I'm so grateful for my bed and my, yeah. Anna, Anna, my partner, she just, she's so sick and tired of me every single night when I lay down in bed and I kind of roll over and I snuggle in and I'm like, I'm so grateful for this bed. <laughs> and she's like, she's just like, I, I get it. I get it. You love the bed. You're grateful for the bed. And I just, she doesn't get it. She's like, she, she doesn't have the experience I had where I slept on a concrete slab for 32 months. Right. That's, that's part of that. Right. So I, I just don't take things for granted. Um, I'm, I'm grateful about a lot. I have a different perspective than a lot of people ever will have because of the shit I put myself through. What did you tell some of the, like the schools you speak to the, the, the teams, like, you know, how do you, how do you translate the message from somebody like you with the experience of an addict to maybe a, a regular young guy with the world by the balls just sitting there? You can't. You can just simply tell your story and hope that when adversity strikes that they have uh, the ability to recall what they heard. Um, you know, if one person in that room hears something that changes their, their life trajectory uh, from going down a, a, a negative path. And also don't forget, you know, my story isn't all about what not to do. It's also about what to do, how to compete, how to uh, achieve, uh, how to be successful, right? I, I just, I didn't wake up one morning in Montana uh, and walk out of the womb and go, oh, here I am with the San Diego Chargers yeah. picking the NFL draft, right? Uh, that's how I think a lot of people associate that's where my life started, so therefore they can shit all over it because of what has transpired from 1998 until 2014, right? Those 16 years are like, that's your life. Uh, and that's not the truth. Yeah. And that's there why I brought up that, dude. you were so amazing. Um, you know, <laughs> playing in college, you really were man. And, and you could tell watching you from afar, how you were having So it looked like you were having so much goddamn fun. Uh, and I was, yeah. I love, I love I doing it. Yeah. And it's like that same kid is now tucking into bed, you know, at night. It's like you found that love with, with something else. And that's, that's why we do this. And that's kind of, you know, I, I, that's why you share the time like you're doing. Look, I, I could talk to you forever. The podcast is bust, right? On, well, how, do you like the, uh, how do you like working with Kevin Conley? Uh, Kevin Conley, for folks that don't know from Entourage, has this Action Park media network. It's pretty awesome. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's great. Great producer, great friend. Uh, we've really developed a great friendship out of this. Uh, and you know, when we first start talking about it and kind of cultivating what it, what, what it may look like or what, it, what we may do, uh, I told him how this could help a lot of people. And I don't, and he didn't understand what that meant until we started recording. Um, it's just me and a mic, it's just me telling my story. Uh, Kevin's the only person in the room with me. Um, Anna, my, again, my partner, she, she helped produce this as well. She knows my story better than anybody, of course. And then Kevin uh, is in, in the room and just lets me speak. And if there's anything he needs clarification with or, 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 or what he thinks the audience um, may need more, more defining uh, in something, he'll, he'll ask me a question to kind of extend the conversation. But uh, best way to put it is I, I trust him and uh, – you know, I don't, I don't trust anybody. So that's, that's incredibly meaningful for me. And the podcast is great. It's almost like chapter by chapter through your life. 
if people it, haven't it checked it out, they, they, they need to listen. It's hardcore. It's kind of the stuff that we, you know, it's, it's kind of like recovery, you know, let's just get to it. Let's be honest. Some of it's ugly. Some of it's beautiful, but we're all, we're yep. all getting better. Yep. Totally agree. What, so what happens when we run out of episodes? I feel like it's a season of succession. I'm starting to think, well, what's going to happen? Like, are we just doing a certain amount or are we going to keep going? Yeah. I mean, uh, then it's a matter of, uh, uh, who I take, to, who I take this to next, who do I take this to, uh, who may have gone through something similar as me or is still going through something that I went through, uh, who had a ton of expectation on them and didn't meet that expectation and, uh, has been defined with that word, you know, uh, a Johnny Manziel or, uh, Jamarcus Russell or an Anna Kornikova or a Michael Kim, Greg Oden things like that, allow them the platform. Uh, because I can tell you what, this has been incredibly therapeutic as well. And it has really taken the power away from that word uh, for me. And I think it would do uh, a great deal for many others uh, in that process. Ryan Leaf, you're the man. Uh, any Anything else? No, sir. Appreciate it, man. You bet. Take it easy. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza. And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. Podcast.